Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Our text for our meditation this morning is the psalm designated for Palm Sunday, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it, the world and all who live in it, because he founded it on the seas, he established it on the rivers. Who may go up to the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, whose soul is not set on what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God who saves him. Such are the people of Jacob who look for the Lord, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift yourselves up, you ancient doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift up, you ancient doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of armies, he is the King of glory. Lord, these are your words, and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, how do you hold your head? I think at a time like this, many of us hold our heads low. And part of the reason we hold our heads low is to not get any of our germs on anyone else, right? Not to breathe on other people or to cough or to sneeze on them. We're supposed to do those things, of course, in our elbow. Because we don't want to get sick and we don't want other people to get sick, do we? We also think for us as Christians during this time of Lent, we are to hold our heads low in humility as we recognize our sinfulness. But today in God's word, he says this, Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift yourselves up, you ancient doors. I've always wondered about those phrases. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift yourselves up, you ancient doors. What part exactly of a gate or a door is its head? And and why and how are they lifted up to be lifted off some sort of maybe position that they're in so they can open up? God really explains this imagery and illustration for us in our text for today. As we consider the whole psalm together, as he describes God's people as well as people who look for the Lord, who seek his face. So we see those gates and those doors are really a picture of God's people lifting up their heads. So today we have reason to lift up our heads, not to spread our germs or to cough and sneeze on people, but to lift up our heads for the King of glory comes. Psalm 24 is the psalm designated for Palm Sunday. So what's the connection? Well, we see kind of similar imagery, don't we, between this psalm and what's happening in the gospel lesson as we read it from the Gospel of St. Matthew. As we think about Jesus, who is certainly a king entering into his holy city of Jerusalem, and all those people surrounding him shouting out, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why exactly did all of those people gather that day? We know, of course, that God wanted to fulfill his prophecy as he spoke through the prophet Zechariah in this way. 
In fact, when Jesus' enemies want him to hush the people, Jesus says if he would do that, even the stones would cry out. This is how important it was for him to hear and to receive that honor and praise from the people that day. The Gospel writers, Luke and John, give us further insight to why the people came. It was because of Jesus' miracles, and one miracle in particular, the miracle that we talked about last week, that incredible miracle of raising a man from the dead, one who had been dead in the tomb for four days. Word had gotten out about this miracle. And so the people in Jerusalem that were there for the Passover feast They gather together and they sing the praises of this great prophet and miracle worker, Jesus. But isn't he much more than a miracle worker and a prophet? God's word today, it asks the question, who is the king of glory? And it tells us the Lord of armies, he is the king of glory. The Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts, it's referring to God himself saying that the one who comes is God. In fact, we see what's said of this one in our text for today. The earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it, the world and all who live in it, because he founded it on the seas and he established it on the rivers. If there is any confusion concerning the king, we need only look to Psalm 2. It says this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. We know that the king that God installs on his holy hill, his holy mountain, is his own dear son, his only begotten son. And so while the crowds maybe didn't recognize who exactly this was, maybe only saw him as a prophet and miracle worker, we see that he is much more. He is God's Son, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And certainly that is our first reason for us to lift up our heads, to lift them up, to offer praise and honor to this amazing King and our God. But he gives us other reasons to lift up our heads. Psalm for today describes individuals going up to God's holy mountain. We can envision this king also going up to that holy mountain. What exactly is that holy mountain? Quite often in scripture, the holy mountain that's described is the mountain of Zion. And Zion was a term used to describe the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was founded on a mountain called Mount Zion. Later on, that term became used for the entire city of Jerusalem, even though it grew from beyond that Mount Zion to refer to all of it as Zion, God's holy mountain. Why is Jerusalem a holy mountain or holy city? Well, it's because it's the place that God makes his presence known among his people. It was the place of the temple. and We know inside the temple was that special room called the Holy of Holies, that place that God said that he would make his presence known in a cloud above the Ark of the Covenant, a place so holy and sacred that no man dare enter that room into the presence of God except one man, the high priest, and only on one day, the day of atonement, and only after that high priest had offered sacrifice for his own sins. 
Did he dare enter into the presence of the holy and almighty God to offer incense and to sprinkle the blood upon the atonement seat? The psalmist for today asked that question for us, though. Who may go up to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can truly enter into God's presence? Who is worthy to be in his presence, to come to his holy city, to his temple? The psalmist responds, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, whose soul is not set on what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands, that's something we talk about quite a bit nowadays, don't we? How important it is to wash and to be clean not spread germs. You probably yourselves over these last few weeks have seen many videos and maybe posters and other displays that explain to you how to properly wash your hands. Maybe you've seen one of those videos that actually has a black light that shows germs left on people's hands after they've thought they've washed them. How true it is, how difficult it is to get rid of every last germ on your hands, to to cover them fully with cleansing soap, to get rid of all of that dirt and grime and the germs that can be on those hands that can make us sick. In our culture today, we often refer to a person who has guilt, whose guilt is known by themselves or by other people as someone who has blood on their hands kind of a a gruesome picture of someone who's committed a terrible murder and they have blood on their hands. Their guilt is known to themselves, it's known to others around them. And as hard as they try to scrub off to make themselves clean of that guilt, they cannot. You have blood on your hands when it comes to God's commandments. Have you done what is evil in his sight? Have you harmed your fellow man, maybe even somebody very close to you, in your own family, maybe a dear friend? Have you gone against God's commandments by your own actions? If so, you know your guilt. Your guilt is before you. How can you possibly wash your hands clean of that guilt? And even more than this, the psalmist describes not only must we have clean hands being guilt-free concerning our actions, but also as he describes having a pure heart. This really is a more stringent thing, isn't it? Not just to say that we are not to be guilty of sinful actions, but even to have purity on the inside, purity in our heart and in our intentions. We know ourselves, we know our hearts. Even if we can refrain from outward sin, how can we possibly refrain from sins of thought, sins of selfishness, sins of lust, sins of hatred, sins that we harbor deep within our hearts? We know they are thoroughly corrupted. How can we possibly clean our hands and purify our hearts? Solomon writes these words in Proverbs 20. When a king sits on his throne as judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have purified my heart? I am cleansed from my sinfulness. 
Solomon's reminding us that no one can clean himself from his own sin, his own guilt, or the evil intentions of his heart. It's impossible. So where do we turn? God. This is what God declares in our lesson for today to his people. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God who saves him. Such are the people of Jacob who look for the Lord, who seek your face. It says that God gives us what we lack. God gives us blessing and he gives us his righteousness. Us who are cursed on account of our sin, who deserve God's wrath and punishment. Blessing. Righteousness. How can this be? Well, it's through God who saves us. You know, as I was studying our text for today in the original language in Hebrew, I was stuck on that word, saves. It really stuck out to me because not only is it a, the word that the word Hosanna is derived from, that word that means save us, God, but also it is that same word that's Jesus' name, isn't it? That name Jesus, that means the Lord saves. We think about how God has saved us. He saves us by sending the King of glory. The King of glory, as he's described in our text for today, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This is the reason Jesus enters into Jerusalem, not just simply to receive the praises of the people all around him for his wondrous works and miracles, but he enters into Jerusalem to go to battle for us. And he goes to battle not on the holy Mount Zion, but on Calvary's holy mountain, where he goes to bear the burden and guilt of sins that he did not commit, so that he can bring to us righteousness that we don't deserve. The Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, the Apostle Paul describes what God does for us, that he sends his king, his son, in order to go to battle for us on a cross, to give up his life, to suffer and die for our sins that we might have his righteousness. As he says in our text, he will receive righteousness from God who saves. So how does this righteousness become ours? Well, the Apostle Paul explains that to us in Romans chapter 3. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and over all who believe. The righteousness that Jesus gives righteousness that he won for us, his holiness that he has given comes to us through faith. Faith is something that we do not merit or earn, but it's a gift of God through the work of the Holy Spirit who works upon our hearts, repentance and faith to believe, to believe the righteousness that Jesus offers, his holiness, that holiness that he gave as a sacrifice to God on the cross for us, so that we can be certain, 
having the righteousness of God, that we are acceptable in His sight, that we are able to ascend the holy mountain of the Lord, to enter into God's presence and not be condemned, having the righteousness that Christ has won for us through faith. And so this is the second reason that we have as Christians to lift up our heads. We lift them up knowing that the King of glory comes as our Savior from sin. There is a third and final reason we have to lift up our heads. During this past week, my family and I gathered for our regular family devotion after dinner one evening. And the devotion was focused on the events of Palm Sunday. And after I read that devotion, one of my son raised his hand and he said to me, Dad, I'm kind of confused though. If Jesus came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to suffer and die, and he didn't actually die until he was put on the cross on Good Friday, well, what did he do on the days in between? I went on to tell him that the Bible informs us that Jesus cleared out the money changers from the temple on one of the days. But the Bible also reveals to us that on one of the days, Jesus sat down with his disciples to really remind them of the end of the world and to really give them indicators and signs to be looking for for the end of time. In fact, Jesus spoke these words during Holy Week from Luke chapter 21. As he informed his disciples, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and plagues in various places. And on the earth, nations will be in anguish, people fainting from fear and expectations of the things coming on the world. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to happen, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. As he reminds them to look for signs, to look for natural disasters, to look for earthquakes, to look for people without food, to look for plagues and pestilence, to look for disease, to see that these things are the sign of the times, that the end is drawing near. While the rest of the world is terrified and afraid, filled with so much fear and panic, what does God inform his people to do as they see these signs? Lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. We have a reason to lift up our heads even now. As many lower their heads in fear, so afraid of the future, so afraid of what might happen. As this terrible virus spreads throughout our world, we as Christians can lift up our heads in confidence, not because we want to get germs on other people, but because we are confident that our Savior comes for us to bring us to be with him to his eternal and new Jerusalem, that perfect place of heaven that he has made us acceptable in his sight through faith in his son Jesus Christ, to know that we will enter with him one day to that holy and perfect place. I think of that image of Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. As he was hanging there dying, there was a sinful man next to him who was also dying and turns to him and says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And even though things look so bleak for both of them, 
Jesus reassures him, today you will be with me in paradise. What a great reminder that is for us as well. As we look all around, as things seem so bleak, we have Jesus' promise that we will be with him forever one day in paradise. In that new Jerusalem, in that Zion above. So lift up your heads, God's people, for the King of glory comes. We lift up our heads, ultimately in praise of the one who is our Savior God, confident that he will bring us to be with him forever in heaven. Lift up your heads, for the King of glory comes. Yes, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore.